Good morning, Christ Community. On this wonderfully warm and sunny morning, (laughs) I realized this morning that I dressed according to the weather, all in gray. That's a good thing, I guess. Um, My name is Kenny Cluett. I'm one of the associate pastors uh, here, uh, also a fellow, which is is basically a a program that, that, I mean, you guys know this, but (laughs) it's basically a program, a a two-year kind of medical residency, but for pastors. Um, Some of us need medical residencies as well, probably. Especially after preaching, after hearing this word, right? This is a difficult, difficult passage to hear this morning. Um, and if you're anything like me, when you hear this passage, you tremble a little bit. Um, some of you might be saying, did I just hear Tom read scripture justifying hiding information from legal authorities? Is that what I heard? Did, did, did I just, is that, that can't be right. Um, and, and rest assured, it's, it's not right. That's not the correct interpretation of this text, but... It's also true that this text has been used in terrible ways. Um, It has been abused in terrible ways to to try to justify hiding cases, things that happen within the church, sometimes even criminal cases, sometimes even abuse from authorities. And this has done a lot of damage. Um, This has hurt the name of Jesus. This has brought shame to the church. Um, And that's not what this is about. So I I wanna urge you this morning to press in and listen because this is one of those texts that we need to get right. We need to get all the scripture right, but there's some texts where you need to get some, you need to study them well, because what it's saying is really important, and getting it wrong can lead in really messy directions. So would you bow your head just for a second with me, and let's just pray that God would speak to us. Lord, we pray for your illumination this morning, that you would make your word alive to us. I pray that um, you would shape and form words, and that you would clear our minds, Lord, to first hear your word. Um, and then apply that word to the rest of our lives rather than trying to impose what has happened throughout our lives into your word first. Give us your word, Lord. Give us your food. Give us your breath so that we can go out and do. In your name, amen. So at first sight, this passage, what it tells us, it it seems to be kind of just a technical case, um, right? There's just some um, some kind of lawsuit that's going on, and, and that is the case. Initially, what Tom, or not Tom, what Paul's addressing, <laughs> uh, what Paul's addressing is, is that there apparently are two men in, in the church who have probably had a business deal or something together, and it just hasn't gone well. And one of them seems to feel that he's been cheated out of it or, or, or something just happened, and so they decided to battle it out, and they took it to the courts. Um, now, this isn't a, a criminal case, no one has been, has been killed. No one has died. It really didn't involve a lot more people, is, is what we find in the language. But once this guy is taking it to the public court, to the public square where everyone's watching, now all the community is involved, all the church is involved. And in fact, all the city's involved watching this, and it's getting messy. And, and some of you may be thinking this morning, yep, that's me. That's happened before, right? Because we've, a lot of us have been in different deals and different things with Christians. In fact, maybe you even start, tried to work out a business with a Christian or with someone who had a little fish on their dashboard, um, and it went pretty wrong. Beware. A lot of people use Jesus' name to get ahead. But you see what's happening in the scripture is Paul isn't just addressing this dispute. In, in fact, what he's doing is he's, he's using this legal case as a case study for different situations in life. And what he's doing here is he's writing these Christians um, and and trying to instruct them in how to answer the all-important question that we all have before difficult situations, right? What do I do? (laughs) Um, And and not just what should I do, 
but, but he's helping them to see, as a Christian, what should I do? Or maybe, maybe even better as a church, when we get before difficult situations, difficult decisions, how do we answer that question? As Christians, what do we do? And you see, the Corinthians had forgotten to ask that question altogether. They just said, hey, this is the, na- the way the normal procedure works. Let's just do this. Um, it doesn't really matter where we're coming from. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You need to stop when these things happen. You need to step back and you need to ask the question, what, as Christians, what should we do? And we'll see as we go through this passage that Paul, taking this case study, he begins to apply it into every single area of our lives. Um, from how we handle multi-million dollar businesses to how we approach our sex life. From how we react to a teacher or a boss who doesn't treat us fairly to how we vote on those big, hairy, controversial issues. And I just got all the heads in the room to raise up. It's great. But before these difficult situations, this is the question, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. We must learn to instinctively ask as Christians, what should we do? Um, Now a disclaimer. I am not going to tell you how to vote. I hope that's good for most of you. Um, neither, neither am I going to tell you how to deal with a very particular situation. We're all in, comp- in complex situation where there's a lot of people at stake or a lot of interests at stake. Um, and that would be impossible for me to do, and quite frankly, it would be foolish for me to try. But this is what we are going to do this morning. We're going to glean from Paul three important reminders that he gives to the church in Corinth and that God, through Paul, through his word, is giving to us this morning. Three important reminders. Um, when we're facing this question as a Christian, what should I do? Um, so let's get right into it. Let's look at the first reminder. The first reminder is this. Paul says to them, remember where you're headed. Remember where you're headed. And the way he does this actually is he, he compares two different systems or two different groups of people, um, the public legal officials and the church. So let's read verses one to five again, and, and we'll kind of see how this is played out. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, if you don't have your Bible, go ahead and open it now or use your phone and find first Corinthians chapter six. We're going to read verses one to five. So what Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try these trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? That's the legal officials. He's not saying they're bad. He's just saying, why do you lay them before these people that have nothing to do with the church? And he says, I say this to your shame. Um, now, now, Paul here isn't necessarily saying anything negative about the legal system. He's not trying to discredit our public legal system or the Roman public legal system, which is what's given us civil law um, to a great extent. But rather what he's doing, he's reminding Christians that they are designed for something different than what the public legal system is designed for. They're in a trajectory, we're on a trajectory that's different from the trajectory that the public legal system is, is um, designed for. And let, let me explain what I mean. So when we think about a legal system, just about any legal system, um, but particularly civil things, and civil things are basically, um, it's, it's not like when you kill someone, you don't go to a civil court, that's criminal. Civil is kind of just how we behave with each other and, and how rights work out. Um, But the way this is designed, when we think about these laws and regulations, they're designed to keep people accountable to what? To a minimum common moral denominator, okay? To a minimum common denominator. That's what law is. And if you think about it, right, if if you say, look, I've obeyed all the laws um, in my country, does that make you a great citizen? No, that makes you a decent citizen. (laughs) It makes you 
you know, you don't have to go to prison, maybe. Good job, right? But, but what we're, the, the legal system isn't designed um, to make people great citizens. It's designed to keep people as pretty good citizens. Um, and, and if you break, if you get below that line, um, basically what we're saying is most society says, yeah, that's not good. You're, you're disrupting the peace. You need, to, you need to deal with that. And that's what our legal system is designed for, and that's great. This is a really good thing, right? That's why Paul writes in Romans 13, look, if the authorities are pursuing the bad guys and um, upholding the good, you better obey the law. If, if you're not, like, what are you even calling yourself a Christian? You know, Paul's saying, look, that, that bar that we're designed for, that's great. That's great. We're, we, we affirm judges. We affirm lawyers. We affirm the people that are keeping that, that bar and making sure society keeps um, a basic peace, right? But for Christians, and this is where Paul's point bears on us, for Christians, the minimum common denominator is not enough. You see, that's not our aim, but rather Paul's remind, reminding them, look, you're headed to be judges of the entire universe, angels and all. You say, wow, Paul, that might be a little presumptuous, um, isn't it? But, and, and what does Paul mean by that? So let me give you a little piece of advice for reading scripture, and I'm, I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but um, when we see in scripture like a question, um, like what Paul asks here, he says, do you not know that just tells us to look somewhere else in Scripture because Paul's probably referring to some, somewhere else, right? So sometimes we just pull this up. Oh, I don't understand this. Well, look at the footnotes. You know, that's what you have study Bibles for. <laughs> so if we look at the footnotes here. Sorry. That, um, but that's true. That's just how you read a text, right? Um, if, 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 there, if he asks, don't you know this? Normally it means that somewhere else in Scripture, Paul's just saying, you should know this. You've read this before. Um, and this is a case in point. So if you will, if you can put one finger where we're reading now or mark it with your bookmark, and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And this is where Paul's getting this from. Um, so let me just give you a little bit of the context of, of Matthew chapter 19, and then I'll read some verses at the end. Um, so Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, Jesus is teaching and doing different stuff, and some people start coming up to Jesus and asking him questions. And they're asking him legal questions. In, in Spanish, um, we have this expression called tiquismiquis, which means those little, little things around the corners that you try to get at. And that's what the, these lawyers are doing with Jesus. Saying, Jesus, hey, let's, let's talk about divorce. So what do I need to do? Or what does my wife need to do so that I can divorce her? Like, what's the minimum common denominator that we can get out, right? That's what they're asking. The next question is, what about singles? Like, if it's so, if it's so hard to be married, like, what is single life? What does that mean? How do we deal with that? Um, and, and then we get the famous question, right, by the young rich man. What are the exact laws I need to follow. What's the minimum requirement for me to get to heaven? Remember this? And Jesus says, you know, go through these laws. He's like, oh, I've kept all those. I'm cool. Right? They're asking about this minimum common denominator. They're asking about this bar. What's the minimum bar so that I can be a good citizen? And what does Jesus do in each of those cases? Um, he says, look, this bar down here, that's not what God's designed you for. God's designed you for something so much greater, so much higher. It's not enough to obey the laws. You can't even obey the laws if you try, but it's not even enough to obey the laws. This common denominator is not enough. Christians, you're called to something higher. Since it's not about what's the minimum to get divorced, it's that God has designed man and woman to come together and become one. How are you going to tear apart what God has pulled together? And he says, single people, look, if you want to be single, that's cool, but when you're single, you give everything to God, all your preferences, everything you want to do, you give that to God. That's what being single is about. And then the rich young man, remember what Jesus says to him? It's good. You're keeping the law. You're, you're a decent citizen. But this is what you need to do. You're withholding from God. You need to give everything to God. 
That's what God's kingdom is about. It's about giving everything. So we get to the end of the chapter, and, and you see these disciples looking at Jesus going, wow, well, if the rich man didn't have anything for God, what about us? We've given everything away. And let's read what, jo- what Jesus says. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 to the end. It says, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, when you give everything up for me, as Jesus is saying, then in the new world, you'll finally see a place where all things are made right. All those who have been cut out of the system who have been made last, I'm going to make them first. Finally, finally, justice, full justice will be made. Disciples, this is why you can give up your money. You can give up your rights within marriage, your sexual preferences, because you're in a trajectory to a kingdom of glory where everything will finally be as it should. You're headed towards God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying, and that's what Paul is taking from this. He's giving them a vision of where they're headed, and he's saying, look, the law can't take you there. The law can't take you to the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that that this gives us a right to be judgmental over other people, including people in the world, but rather he's saying, in my kingdom, the bar is always higher. The minimum is always higher. You're not called, Christians, and hear this, we're not called to keep the minimum common denominator. We're called to participate in God's justice that puts the last first and gives everything to those who don't deserve it, just as God gave to us. You see, the the idea here, and this is important, the idea here, Paul's not saying, look, the courts are terrible, they don't know how to do their job. No, but he's saying, the church, you church, you, you should be trained in this. You should be prepared to deal with these kind of things. We should be not saying, ooh, what's the minimum and, and what should people give? But we should be raising the bar and confronting these kind of situations with generosity and love, not letting things get down to the bare minimum. Saying, church, you're being called to the kingdom of God. You're being called to be peacemakers for the whole world. And you're stuck with this little case? See what Paul's doing? And look, this should be an encouragement to us. I know it sounds harsh, but really it should be an encouragement. Why? Because if it's true that we're being shaped into being saints that will sit in God's kingdom of justice, then we should have the confidence that we can work through things, that we can actually be peacemakers, both within the church and, and, and outside of the church, in our boards, right, where peace is sometimes the hardest thing to achieve in our families, in our, in our workplace, in other situations, even maybe for some of us in the courts, we're called to be peacemakers, not to keep the bare minimum. So let me ask you this morning, are you aware that you're called to be a peacemaker? Are you aware that you've been given through the church or, or through Christ to the church, you've been given wisdom and you've been given God's word, you've been given prayer to pray through these situations. You're called to do this. But here's the other thing, in addition to confidence, this should actually give us humility as well, right? Because God's not calling us to be judges because of who we are. He's not saying, man, you're so great, I selected you to be one of my 12 judges. I mean, that's definitely not the case, but he's saying, look, sit at my side where my justice is being made. 
he's saying his justice is, is, is the thing that we can press into. So really, there's confidence that we have that justice, but there's also humility that this is God's justice. That's why we come to the Word together. Now, I was even thinking about this this morning as I drove here. Um, as we preach, there's something in that as well, because we should come with confidence, right, when we preach, because we look at this Word, we study it well. Look, God is saying this, um, we, we, and we should have that confidence, but at the same time, there's this deep humility that allows us to study this word as a team, or as a group, which is what we do here, that allows us to, to meet together with other people from other cultures and say, how are you reading this text? Because this is really hard to understand. Let's come to it together. Let's discover what God's giving us together. That's our, that's our humility that we bring. Not that the text changes. Text is t- the, the same, but it's God's word, not ours. So it should give us confidence and humility when we realize what trajectory we're on. This is the first reminder that Paul gives them. He says, when you remember you're headed to his kingdom, you can humbly approach conflict and you can let him use you to bring reconciliation. Then Paul goes into a second reminder. And he says, look, remember who you're going on this trip with. Remember who you're with. You see, Paul doesn't just say, this is where you're headed, that's enough. And the reason is Christianity was never designed to be an individualistic religion. And of course, there's individual, um, there's individual decisions we make as Christians, right? We decide to follow Christ. But as soon as we decide to follow Christ, what are we called to do? We're called to be baptized. We're called to be baptized into Christ, into the risen Christ, but also into Christ's body, which is the church. We're called to be a community. This journey to, to God's kingdom that we're taking, we're taking it together. We need each other. We are a body. And this is something that these two guys in Corinth had forgotten. Look at how Paul puts it in verses 6 and 7. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 6 and 7. He says, he's asking this, right? And he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. To have lawsuits at all is already a defeat. And you see, these two guys, they'd stop thinking about the body. They'd stop thinking about the community, but rather thinking, who deserves more? Who's more important? Who needs to get more out of this deal? And most importantly, who's the loser here? See, in business terms, they went from a win-win negotiation situation to a win-lose to a lose-lose, right? That's where they are right now. And we know this. I I mean, even even TV knows this. There's a new series on NBC. You may have seen it. It's called The Slap. And the whole premise for this film is how a legal dispute shatters a family. See, some issues simply cannot be solved in a courtroom. And, and, and we, we know this well as a church, too. I mean, imagine turning on Judge Judy one day. Not that I ever watched that. Um, <laughs> actually, don't. But imagine turning on Judge Judy and seeing two Christ community people battling out there. You don't, the first thought that comes to your mind is, oh, they made some really good decisions, right? Um, and imagine how long it would take to clean that mud off of the name of the church. Um, and this is what is happening here. These two men have stopped looking at each other. They've stopped looking at the community and they're just looking to themselves and looking out for themselves. You see, they had forgotten what the church is. They had forgotten what the church should be about. See, the church isn't just a place where we come as individuals to be fed, to enjoy the music, to get some ideas and go home. It's a place where we come together to grow into the community of reconciliation that God is forming. Church is not just a place where people get along. Church is a place where we love each other to pieces. And of course, there's going to be conflicts, right? That's what families are all about. I mean, uh, families are about love and conflicts and love and conflict. The same in the church. But we're not called to just ignore those conflicts or throw them out. 
we're called to practice before, during, and after them reconciliation. We're, we're, we're called to learn together and to live in love. And you see, the legal system doesn't do this. There's nothing wrong with the legal system, but it's not going to make you reconcile to someone. Once you, once you get to a point where you're having to decide who wins and who loses, normally both of you have lost. And see, in our church, and, and I think this is one of the key things, this is one of the reasons we have community groups. And this is one of the reasons also we have Sundays. Um, Sunday, you have to come and you have to rub shoulders with the guy that offended you last week. Um, you have to talk to the person who put something on Facebook about the other political party that you don't like, right? You have to work through this stuff because you see him every Sunday. And if you don't deal with it, you turn into some kind of weird, ostracized person that tries to keep to himself. And hopefully, your church and your community group and the people around you won't let you stay like that for a long time. We're called here to come. Um, another way of seeing it is, is we're called to come and unlearn a bunch of behaviors and social mores that we've learned since we've been kids of, of self-centered stuff, right? I mean, out, out in the world, and we, we, we learn these rules that tell us you must position yourself above the next guy, right? We even hear this all the time. You have to find some reason why you deserve something more than the person next to you. Maybe it's because you're richer. Maybe it's because you're brighter. Maybe it's because you worked harder. Maybe it's because of the fairness of your skin. Those are the kind of dumb things that we get involved in in this world is fighting for that. And in church, we need to unlearn those things. We need to slowly start tearing those away and, and, and unlearn them by gathering with brothers and sisters and saying, oh my goodness, look how I've treated this. Look at my self-interest where I should be interested for the body. And look, as we learn it here, we take it home. We take it to our Mondays. We take it to our Tuesdays. We take it to our Wednesday board meeting that no one wants to go to, and we bring it there and say, hey, how can I bring peace here? How can I bring reconciliation? And here's the thing. The world is looking closely, just as much as it was looking in Corinth. The world is looking at us because we promise to be a community of reconciliation, and everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be in a family, and they're looking at the church saying, could it be true? Could it be real that there actually is a hope of living together as a community, regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of education or of nationality? Could it be true? And they're looking. And this is why Paul is saying, guys, you take this before the court. He's not saying, hey, don't show your dirty laundry to the court. He's saying, why don't you wash it first? And then you can go to the courts. Then you can show what it looks like to live reconciled. So what about us? What about you? Facing a difficult decision, are we thinking about the church community? Or are we just thinking about ourselves and how this is going to affect us? You come Sunday morning, are you staying away from that sister or brother that offended you or, or did something or, or even mistreated you and, and with all fairness, you have no need to go back to them? Or are you pursuing love and reconciliation? How are we doing with that? There's another question here for the leaders. Are we engaging our community and thinking about this? Are we creating spaces where people can actually work out this stuff? Are we learning about the economy and, and all the complexities in the world so that when these situations do happen, we can sit and we can seek God's wisdom together? I hope we are. But this is what Paul's calling this community to be. He's saying, look, in the face of difficult decisions, first remember where you're headed, but also remember that you're going there with a reconciling community. Then Paul moves into a third reminder 
a third point, and this one's going to hurt a little more. Because up to this point, I think a lot of us agree. Right? It's pretty easy to agree to this stuff. Yeah, we need to be better friends, good. But what happens when it doesn't work, right? What happens when you get into that situation, you're the one being cheated out of your money, and you just realize this other person isn't listening. It's not going to work. And here's Paul's advice. Ready? Listen to this. Paul says, choose to lose. Paul says, choose to lose. Look at verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already lost anyway. But then he says this, and this is powerful. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Church, Paul says, choose to suffer wrong. Choose to be defrauded if you can. Choose to lose. We say, how can he say that? How does that work? This way he says, Paul says that because Christ chose to lose for you. Christ chose to lose for us. He was our guide going before us on this trajectory, and now we can follow his path of losing, of suffering, of being defrauded. You see, the gospel is that God came in Christ to give everything away for us. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about it like this. He says, Christ had the form of God. He had the status of God. He was the highest being in the entire universe, and what he decided to do because he was God was empty himself, become like, like nothing, like a nobody. And if that's not enough to convince him, he says, look, he became like a servant, like a slave. And what does it say? He became obedient and obedient to the point of death. This is what Christ has done for us. He chose to lose for us. And look, if Christ had only died, then Nietzsche would be right. Us Christians are to be pitied, right? Nietzsche was this philosopher and he said, look, God is dead, he died. His way of giving himself, it, it, it didn't work. So why don't we build ourselves into superhumans and squash the weak and the people that we don't like in society, let's just throw them out and, and we'll build this perfect society. And if Christ had just died, he'd be right. It would be stupid to lose. But Christ didn't stay dead. Christ was raised from the dead and he was lifted to the highest place. It says in Philippians, now because the Father lifted him up to his name, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he was raised above anything else, all the rules of the game have changed. And now there's only two options. There's only two paths. One is to lose and let him win for you. And the other is to try to win now and keep raging uselessly against God and against each other. And look, this is what Paul's saying in this passage. Look at, look at what he does with verse 7 as he brings verse 8 into it. In verse 7, remember, he said, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But he says, no, you're on the other path. Look at verse 8. You yourselves wrong, and you yourselves defraud, and even your own brothers. You see, if you're not letting yourself be wronged, if you haven't given up the fight to be number one, then you're wronging and you're defrauding. That's what Scripture says. Those are the two paths. There's only two options. And you see, that's what leads Paul into the next part, to kind of extend this idea suddenly into all the rest of the areas of our lives. He starts listing all these behaviors that attempt to take for ourselves, attempt to self-satisfy and self-gratify rather than giving ourselves away to God and to each other. And all these kind of things um, that, that we're going to read about this, we're going to get into in the, over the next three weeks, so you can definitely look forward to that. But let's, let's just read them now for a second. This is verses 9 to 10. Notice, notice how Paul says first, Look, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And up to there, we're fine because he's saying, look, it's unrighteous to, to defraud others. But then he takes it further. 
He says, do not be deceived. It's not just the unrighteous in this sense. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see this one path, the one trying to get for ourselves, it leads to judgment and exclusion from God's kingdom. It leads to the eternal loss of the one thing that matters. And look, all of us struggle with that path. We're not trying to say, hey, in the church, we're cool. Everyone outside is different. This is the way we naturally tend to be. In fact, um, there's a professor at Yale, Miroslav Volf, and he puts it this way. He says, far too often power, not fairness and certainly not generosity, is the name of the game. We assert ourselves in our own interests through raw physical strength, political connections, or loads of cash, through sexual prowess, sarcastic comments, lies, and half-truths, through anything that can serve as a weapon in this low-grade war called life. We fight, and we often take spoils or go away defeated, whether considering business, politics, family, or education, the big fish eat the little ones. Laws and regulations do limit excessive abuse. It's a good thing about the law, but it says, however, they only mark the space in which the war is waged. They don't eliminate the war. And you see, we're all involved in this war, both as individuals and as cultures. We all naturally try our best to get ahead, to be number one. And with that, we step on others and move them out of the way. And this is the one path. But friends, I have good news. There's hope. There's hope. There's another path. And this path isn't something that you can win or you can acquire on your own. This path starts with losing. It starts with admitting that you are, in fact, involved in all the things on this list. I am involved, in fact, with everything in this list. We are enemies of God by inclination. It starts by admitting that we've already lost this battle. And it ends. And it ends by accepting Christ's work for us, his holiness and his justice. Look at verse 11. This is how Paul ends as well. He says, and such were some of you. He says, not, none of us get away from this war. But, but, that word is so good in the Bible. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we can lose. And not only can we lose because Christ has shown us how to do it, but we can also lose because Christ has given us the ability to walk in this path. He's cleaned us so we can start to lose for the sake of Him and for the sake of others. He's justified us so that we can live justly towards others and so we can suffer injustice. And look, he left his Holy Spirit so that we'd be united to him. The church would inherit his spirit, his generosity, his wisdom, his ability to lose now so that we might win him forever. And this is what it boils down to in Paul's mind. Here's what the good advice ends up being when we're faced with these situations and we say as Christians, what should we do? He says, look, choose to lose today because you're being shaped for his kingdom tomorrow. Choose to lose today because you're being shaped for his kingdom tomorrow. Choose to give it all away if you can. Choose to go above the bar of minimum justice. Choose to live into your church community today because you're being shaped for his kingdom tomorrow. And in fact, you're being shaped for his kingdom today. Look, before we end, let me ask just some practical questions. And even before I ask these, I realize that this is complicated, right? Sometimes you want to choose to lose, but you have shareholders that, are tr- that, that have certain uh, re- relationship with you. You have a board, you have your family. And this is complicated. 
This doesn't mean, hey, let's just throw everything to the wind and we'll be cool. This is complicated, but the principle here, the thing that Paul's saying is learn to live in that posture where you're ready to lose stuff that you want for yourself. So let me ask some just self-examining questions that we can take home this week. Is the gospel shaping your heart and what you want to get out of this conflict that you're involved in? Are you wanting to be right or are you ready to be wronged for the sake of your brother or sister? What about when making important decisions? Is your aim to keep as close as possible to the legal and moral minimum line? Or are you truly seeking the good of those you're dealing with, those you're negotiating with, those you're employing? When you're fighting for rights and for justice, is this about rights for you? Or are you fighting for the rights of those who are being stepped on? Are you seeking your own justice? Are you seeking the justice of God, which puts the last first and the first last? What about these big things in society, right? These big ticket issues that we need to vote on. Yeah, stuff like education, immigration, war. Are we submitting that to the gospel as well, how we think about that? Or are we simply just adjusting to the minimum common denominator laws of our land? And as a church, are we coming together to think about this, to apply the gospel to these difficult topics? Leaders, are we providing the space to study scriptures and help our congregation, help ourselves figure out how to make the wisest decisions? And as a congregation, are we seeking community? Are we trying to work this out together? Or are we just thinking about ourselves? And let me say this. I actually think we are. I'm really encouraged in this church. It's not a perfect church. Um, I can tell you that. You probably know that more than I do. But this is what we, this is the course that we want to be on, is saying, let's look at Scripture and let's, let's tackle these heavy topics. And, and in fact, actually studying this book of 1 Corinthians is one step in that direction. Um, and if you thought this was bad, the next three weeks, you're going to love them. Because um, you know that list that I read? We're going to get into that list. And we're going to talk about these things. Why? Because we love getting up here and getting a bunch of emails of people that hate us? No. We do it because we feel that we're called to God's kingdom. We're called on this trajectory, and that means gleaning wisdom from the wisdom that God's given us. That means pressing into Scripture and trying to get it right and really trying to work through these interpretations so that we understand what the original authors meant to say because that's how God communicated and that's how God's communicating to us. So I'm encouraged this morning, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be hard conversations. But boy, am I happy that God gave us his word. And he didn't just say, hey, I saved you. I'll figure it out. He gave us his word. He gave us these practical cases that help us work through stuff. So look, as we leave today, I want to encourage you, keep pressing in. Let's continue to learn to trust God's word, even when it's hard, even when it calls us to be ready to lose for Christ's sake. Because losing for his sake means being prepared for his kingdom of perfect justice and truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. And Lord, we're so thankful that you didn't just throw down this word for us, but you lived it through Christ. Lord, we thank you that you, you're, you've given us the option of losing so that you might win through us, Lord. We pray that you would help us this week as we think through these things, Lord, and as we go to our different meetings and our different situations, that we would be able to live in this posture of losing for your sake. In your name, amen.